0: Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open up before our eyes the great truths of your word. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would convict us of our sin, that you would encourage us with the hope of the gospel, and that you would push us on to greater and more obedience. Lord, we long to be like Jesus. We ask that you would open our eyes now, that we might behold marvelous things from your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our text this morning is a long text, and so for that reason, I'll simply refer to and read sections of it as we come across it. It's the entirety of chapter 4. When I was younger one of my favorite things about going to the theater were the previews before the actual movie came on. I know that's hard for the younger amongst us to understand because you can go to the Internet now and watch previews months before they, they come out and they're on television. And, but back in, I guess I could say the old days, back in the old days, the only time you really got to see the preview of what was coming out was when you went to the theater. They rarely showed previews on television, and there was no Internet. And my friends and I had sort of a rating system for a movie. You could tell how good the movie was going to be by how many previews preceded it. It was a one-preview movie. Well, it wasn't going to be very good. Two, okay. Three, good. Four, this is an Oscar contender. And you would sit back and you would enjoy it because you could anticipate what was to come, and decide what you were going to see, and then you would talk about how great that movie was going to be, or who was in it, for the several weeks until you went. Well, that's a bit what we have going on here in our text this morning. Our text this morning is a four-preview text, well, three or four, depending on how you look at the middle one, but it's... Not just incidents of God working in the lives of His peoples. I don't want you to just see the individual miracles here this morning. These are actually previews of the world that is to come. Not heaven. Not when America gets perfect. But when the Lord remakes the heavens and the earth and reigns in righteousness over his people. And so what I'd like us to see are vignettes of how God is powerful in many ways and how he will have power over the miseries and sin of this life. The first thing that we'll see is the Lord's power over despair. This is something that I trust many of us know full well what it means like, what it means to despair. And we'll see this morning the Lord's power over despair. Perhaps the only thing that can grip us more tightly than despair is death. And so this morning we will also see the Lord's power over death. How the Lord is powerful over despair, how He is powerful over death, and then finally we'll see how the Lord is powerful over danger. Despair, death, and danger. Vignettes of the world to come found in the ministry of the prophet Elisha. Our chapter begins with Elisha having a woman come and request his aid. And the text breaks right into the difficulties. There's a lot going on in this chapter. It is chock full of miracles. I explained uh, this text to my boys who were sick and staying home today, and I said, you may want to read that this morning. It's, it's a really exciting text. There are a lot of miracles in it. And our author comes right to the point beginning. He says, Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditor has come to take away my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not a few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. We have here a situation of a woman who is in despair. She is in a desperate situation. If you think about it, this is the definition of double trouble. Here is a woman who has just recently been widowed. She has no husband to provide for her and protect her. And as if that were not bad enough, there were debts to be paid. And in the ancient Near East, it was not uncommon that if you could not pay your debts, that you were sold into a type of slavery, a bondage, a debtor's prison to work off your debts. There was no such thing as bankruptcy or a government bailout in the ancient Near East. If you couldn't pay your debts... You were taken and put into bondage until you could pay them off. So what would that mean for this woman? It means she has no husband, and her sons, all that are left for her, both in terms of her family and provision, are about to be taken away. This is a desperate situation. But it's actually made even more desperate by the context, if we look closely. Look at verse 1. Who is she? She is the wife of of one of the sons of the prophets. You see, her difficulty is is that her husband was faithful in a faithless time. Her husband, at the risk of his own life, was faithful to the Lord God in the midst of a society that was opposed to the Lord God. There are some traditions, repeated by Josephus, that say that this man who has died is actually Obadiah the man that we met in 1 Kings, who provided food for the prophets in the sets of 50. And the tradition is that he borrowed the money to pay for the food to feed the prophets. Now, whether that's exactly the case or not, the text doesn't tell us, but what we do know is that this man has sacrificed in order to serve the Lord God. He is perhaps the last person whose family should suffer calamity. And yet... This is what happened. Her husband was faithful, and now she is in grave trouble. It's kind of like perhaps some of you might feel in the midst of this financial crisis. Many of us know of a family who's lost a home, who's diligently paid on it over and over again. Perhaps they've lost a job due to downsizing or layoffs. And then you look on the news and you hear about some large corporation getting government billions going out for spa treatment. And you shake your fist at the TV and you say, why should this be? They've sacrificed. And look how they're being repaid. And these others are being presumptuous. And look what they're getting. That perhaps would be the attitude that this woman should have. It's a very desperate situation. So what happens in the middle of this situation? Well, what happens is what happens often in the Bible. In the midst of desperation, God steps in. And God steps in at first quietly, because God doesn't come at first with a flash and a bang. Do you notice how God first appears on the scene? It is through the cry of this woman. She comes to Elisha, who is, as we will see over and over and over again in this chapter, the man of God. The man of God has attributed that phrase more to Elisha than anyone else in the Scripture. And this chapter has more references to the man of God than any other chapter in the scripture. The author wants us to know that Elisha here is not acting as some sort of parlor magician, but rather as the very prophet of God, the very mouthpiece of the word of God. And she comes to Elisha and she cries, Your husband, your, your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know the creditors are coming, they're going to take. My two boys. Now, I want you to notice how God comes in, what her solution to this problem is. Is it that she says, You know, Elisha, my husband is dead. I owe 30 denarii. It would be good if you could have a garage sale and provide me with the funds. Or I know what you could do. Perhaps you could go and talk to the creditor and talk him out of collecting. No. Are you not struck by the oddness of the fact that she doesn't offer any solution? She doesn't have any suggestion as to what the solution would be. She merely takes her need to God through Elisha. She merely cries out to God. She doesn't try and think ahead of god she doesn't try and manage a solution she merely does what the psalmist describes in psalm 142 2 he says i pour out my complaint before him i tell my trouble before him is that something that comes to your mind when you're in difficulty or are you perhaps like me at times given to having your wheels within wheels spinning, of trying to always find a solution, an angle, a possibility. The scripture here tells us that the place to begin is with God, and to see what He will do, and how He will redeem. God steps in through this cry out to Him from this woman, and she describes her situation. She talks about her lack She says, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Now, what I want you to understand here from this text, we understand the whole chapter. I've just read to you the first seven verses. And what we think is happening is what one commentator calls, this is a widow's starter kit to financial prosperity. We almost picture her saying, oh, I've got that jar of oil. When that's not the case. What she's saying is, I don't have a thing. All I've got is this jar of oil. She's laying out the fact that she has nothing to bring, nothing to offer, no solution. She is completely at the end of her rope. She is meaning to show Elisha her complete lack, not the beginnings of sufficiency. Understand that. Because it makes it all the more marvelous then that we see God acting through her lack, showing His power through her weakness. You heard that before in the Scriptures? Paul talking about it in his letter to the Corinthians. Her lack, her weakness comes forth and God begins to show His all-sufficiency. Elisha says, go and borrow empty vessels. You don't need to borrow money from anyone or borrow from anything. God will provide. But it's interesting what God does here through Elisha. He doesn't just simply... Say a few words and money appear from sky. You see that? He doesn't just simply cause people to come and drop off jars of oil. He says to her, in effect, woman, you have faith. Now your faith must work. You must obey. You must act on your faith. You must act in faith. You must go and go get empty vessels. Not so that you can show your worth or merit, because empty vessels are worthless. But you must show that you trust God to do something with empty vessels. And so she goes out and we see her obedience working with her faith. This is a wonderful example of how faith and obedience work, so often we get tied up in this conundrum. We think of faith without obedience, bare assent, and we think of needing obedience to buttress our faith. If If we don't obey, God won't accept us, when in reality, it is our faith that ties us to God and our obedience that shows that we have faith. It is evidence of faith. And so she goes out and God steps in. And as He does so often, God answers her prayer beyond anything that she might imagine. It's a desperate situation, but when God steps in, we see overflowing blessings. Do you see that God not only provides, He overprovides. He doesn't just provide a temporary fix. You see, He could have given enough oil for her to pay off the debts, get the creditors off the doorstep, keep the wolves away from the door, and then say, Okay, nameless lady, you're on your own. I'm off to bigger and better things. Get your boys to hard work. But that's not what God does. Do you see how God blesses? God's plan is not just simply to temporarily provide for a solution. Elisha says, Go, sell, pay, pay and live literally live on the excess can you imagine what that would feel like to her it's like one of my favorite restaurants in niagara falls i may have mentioned it to you before it's a wonderful italian restaurant called the como and i always used to go with my family when i was younger and a little bit lighter in the waist and i loved the fact that it was pretty much eat as much as you wanted I say pretty much because they brought family-style plates of pasta and chicken and steak. And what happened was, unlike buffets, where you put as much as you can on your plate and put as much in your belly as you can, right, young guys? What happened was, everything that was left over in the family dishes, you got to take home in styrofoam boxes. Sometimes a meal or two's worth, depending on how much you ate there. That's what's happening here for this woman. The blessings overflow upon her. This is a picture of how God works. You see, God works this way because people are important to God. I want you to notice in this first vignette that this woman is nameless. She has no name. She's not even the Shunammite woman. She doesn't even have a place where she's from. And yet, this woman receives seven verses of scripture describing her. Do you know that the most powerful king of Israel, Omri, only gets six? And two of those are to describe his death. God cares about little people. He cares about you. He cares about me. And His blessings, when they flow out, are overabundant. Does that mean that every need that you have in this life will be satisfied? Moreover, that if you pray, you'll go home today and find not one but two Cadillacs in your driveway? No. But what it does mean is that in the life to come, the blessings that will come upon you will be more than you can ever imagine. Those blessings are abundant. Do not despair. God is at work today. God is powerful over despair. And then, as if our author says, Well, if you think that was something, let me tell you another story. We all sit around the campfire and listen. As he describes a story of the Lord's power over death, beginning in verse 8. Elisha goes out and there is now another woman who is also, interestingly enough, nameless. This woman is a different woman. She comes from a place, a place called Shunem, which is in central Israel, about 20 miles from Mount Carmel. She's a very different woman because she does not have the problem of money and debts. As a matter of fact, she is a wealthy woman. It's interesting that very close together in the text, the Bible shows us that everyone has problems in this life. You can have children like the first woman and have real problems. I imagine the second woman would look at the first woman and say, oh, but at least she has kids. And the first would look at the second woman, but at least you've got money. You see, everyone has difficulties in this sinful world. This is another woman, and she is generous and thoughtful. Elisha comes through and she feeds him and this becomes a habit and she says to her husband, you know what we ought to do? Let's not have Elisha be embarrassed by constantly wondering if we're going to have an extra bowl of soup or an extra steak on the barbie. Let's build him a little room. Let's build him an in-law suite, so to speak, and let him live right on our property when he's here, kind of as part of the family. We don't have any other family. And when he comes by, then he can stay with us. And they think that that is a wonderful thing to do. And Elisha is certainly touched by it, so touched that he says to her, Ma'am, what can I possibly do for you? Now, this is not a flippant offer. This is not like one of you is doing repairs around your home or on your car, and I say, what can I do to help? And you look at me and you say, stay very far away from me. Don't break anything. No, this is a man who says, What can I do to help? I know the king and the commander of the army. You name it, I can get it. And she looks at him and she says, I'm content. I dwell here among my people. You're here with me. I don't need anything. She exudes contentment. The question I would ask you Is that your feeling about your lot in life right now? Now, I know your lives aren't perfect. Neither is mine. But neither was this woman's. She could have easily said, you know, I've heard you're a man of God. You can do some pretty marvelous things. I don't have a child. Anything you can do about that? No, she just says, I'm content with what the Lord has given to me. And Elisha responds in a way that is so often found in the scriptures. He turns to his servant and he says, do you know anything? And he says, well, her husband is old and she doesn't have a son. And so immediately we see a commonality with the first woman. Because if her husband is old, when he passes away, who will be there to take care of her? No one. And so Elisha says, well, let me tell you what will happen here. He says in verse 16, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. Now this faithful woman, who served the prophet of God, could not help but be floored by that statement. Why? Because she maybe is past childbearing age? No. Maybe because it's that she can't believe that God would give a barren woman a son. No. I think it's because as a godly woman, she knew her Bible. And she would know that that phrase, about this time next year, is only used two other times in the entire Scriptures. It's used in Genesis 18, verse 10, and then again in verse 14. It's the exact words said, to Sarah about this time next year you'll have a son you see she has just gotten from Elisha the equivalent of a half of a scripture quote that could be given to you to comfort you do you see that Lord I believe help my unbelief the scripture there is a comfort I can do all things through and you can finish the sentence so too with her. And this is a recurring theme that she would know from the history of Israel. This is the story of Sarah, isn't it? This is also the story of Rebecca, a barren woman who wanted a son, and Joseph is born. It's also the story of a woman whom a commentator calls Mrs. (laughs) Manoah, Samson's mother. It's also the story of Hannah, isn't it? when Samuel's born. But I want you to notice something that's very different between the Shunammite woman and all these other ladies I've described for you. In every one of these other situations, the child has been born to continue the line of the Messiah or to perform marvelous deeds in the kingdom of God like Samuel or Samson. There is a reason for that birth. Here, The reason is simply that God delights in bringing joy to his people. Is that a comfort for you? That it doesn't matter if you're at the top of the food chain. It doesn't matter if you're a no-name nobody. That God delights in bringing joy to you through his promises. This is the God that we serve. Is this the God that we delight in? She has been blessed by God, but following quickly on the heels of this blessing comes a different thing that happens. She then becomes baffled by God. She has been blessed by God, and now she's baffled by God because she has this child, and the boy grows perhaps to an age of six or seven. He's just old enough to go see Daddy at the office. He goes out into the field during reaping time. We know he's not fully grown. We don't know how long it's been. But he could be carried back to his mother and he could sit on his mother's lap. So my guess is most mothers here would not put a 16-year-old on their lap unless they had very strong legs. So he's a young boy. So she's had the pleasure of this boy for perhaps just a few years. And he complains about his head and he dies. And... We're stuck looking at the text here. And we say, what's going on here? How can calamity strike this family? This is a faithful family. They served Elisha. They served God. They didn't ask for a son. God just gave them a son. Why is is God doing this to them? Have you ever seen yourself in that text? Why is God doing this to me? I've tried to be faithful. Why is my marriage in trouble? Why aren't my children what they're supposed to be? Why is this illness upon me? God, I need answers. Could you imagine this woman? Could you imagine that in your own life? Well, our author gives us an insight into what faith looks like in the midst of death, death that looks like it has no purpose or meaning. what happens? How does this woman respond? It's very interesting. She gets up, she takes her son, she puts him in the prophet's room, and her husband basically says, "Honey, what's wrong?" And she says, the oddest thing that I've ever seen in the scripture, she says, "All is well, and it keeps going." And then she comes up to Elisha's servant. And he says, what's going on? And She says, all is well. And she keeps going on. And in the midst that we see that she tells her servant, let's go urge the donkey forward. Don't stop for anything. We're going to go see the man of God. And it's an unusual trip. The text tells us that through the husband. He says, listen, honey, it's not church day. Why are you all gussied up for church? She says, I'm going. This urgency presses on. She doesn't know what to do. She doesn't have any answers. But faith tells her to act and to seek out God. And where you find God in Israel at this time is with Elisha. That's all she knows. She needs to find God. To see what he says. To see what he will do. She pursues God. That's what faith looks like in the midst of mess. You see, it's a wonderful hymn, but I fear that we have the wrong view of faith when we sing, it is well with my soul. We think faith is when peace like a river attendeth my way. And that faith in the midst of trial is calm reserve, not being tossed by the waves. When in reality, faith in the midst of difficulty is running after God, clutching after Him with both hands, because we know we can't make it on our own. And we've got to have God. That's where we've got to be. And we act, and we go after Him. Not in desperation, but because we know that's the only place answers can be found. That's the only place for help. That's the only place where we can find comfort in the midst of sorrow. That's what faith is like in the midst of this. And so she does this. And she finds in the midst of her bafflement, in the midst of her difficulty, that God is indeed present, and she begins beholding God. She finds God when there seems to be no answer at all. Could you imagine being this woman and you go and you find the man of God and you say, man of God, what's going on? What do I do? And he basically says, well, I don't know. The Lord hid it from me. I don't know what we're going to do. Could you imagine that? How many of you would appreciate that if you came to me with a counseling difficulty and I said, you know what? Don't know so much. That wouldn't exactly thrill your heart, would it? wouldn't fill you with great comfort, would it? But she presses on. And Elisha says, listen, I don't have a pat answer for you. And sometimes I think as Christians we need to realize that, that pat answers are worse than no answers. A friend of mine said, you cannot go to a funeral and be a Hallmark card. You cannot. You've got to offer the comfort that God gives in the Scriptures. You can't walk up to someone who has just lost a job and is looking at financial ruin and say, you know what, things have a way of working out. It's crass. So what Elisha says is, I don't know what's going on, I don't know what God's going to do, but we're going to act. Do you notice that? Elisha doesn't fire off a Bible verse at her. He doesn't give her a lecture on the sovereignty of God. Well, you know, God's in control. He was in control of your son when he died. No, he says, let's go. Let's go to your home. And then do you notice the way she bonds with him? The Bible wants us to see it. He keeps trying to tell her, well, why don't you wait here? And she says in verse 30, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. That should sound familiar to you. It should be familiar to Elisha. It's exactly what he said to Elijah. She's clinging to him the same way that he clung to Elijah, because they both know that's where God is found at this time. And so God is active through his servant Elisha. And he comes down. And this woman receives her son back to life again, as Hebrews 11.35 says. She appears again in a figure in Hebrews 11 as a woman of faith who received her son back alive again. But I want you to see one other thing here, briefly. And that is that, again, this is more than just one boy brought back to life again. Because we don't know anything more about this boy. For all we know, he worked on the back 40 for a while. Maybe he got married and then he died. Right? But this is a prefigurement of what is to come. How the Lord conquers death. There's another vignette very like it. In Luke chapter 7, we have the story of the family at Nain. Remember how Jesus cancels that funeral? Do you know where Nain is? It's a couple of miles north of Shunem. Don't let the irony be lost on you here. It would certainly be true in Nain that at least some people would know the history. You know, down about five miles down the pace that way, there was a boy. He died. And the man of God brought him back to life again. Showed that God was at work. And the Lord Jesus Christ walks into a room and as only Jesus can do, he says, don't weep. How foolish that would be if he did not have power over death. Could you imagine a friend coming in and say, don't cry over your dead child. But Jesus brings back to life. You see, it's only Jesus that can say, don't weep. Because he has power over life and death. Power that will be received by all who believe in him. Not just some, but all. The Lord has power even over death. Our final vignette is one in which we see the Lord's power over even danger, even we might call it ordinary danger. We might be tempted to look at this and say, well, yeah, we understand this woman is going to have her two sons dragged off to debtor's jail. This other woman, there's a death in the family. But listen, does God really care that my portfolio is down 30%? Does God really care that I don't have enough cars to drive? Does God really care that we can't sell our home? This last vignette tells us that God has power even over danger. Look at what happens here in verse 38. Elisha comes again to Gilgal, and there's a famine in the land. This is likely a judgment from God on Israel. And I want you to notice that God does not safely scoop up every believer in Israel and take them out so that they don't experience hunger. This is something that we need to be aware of. That when judgment comes on a nation, the people of God who are in the nation experience judgment. It should make us very cautious About wishing judgment on our nation for its sins. So, there is a a danger in the world, there is famine in the land, and Elisha is holding a school lesson. They are sitting before him, a bunch of sons of the prophets, and he is, we might imagine, lecturing on or giving a sermon on or commenting on the scripture. And they're hungry. And somebody orders up a pot of big pot stew or soup. What's big pot stew? It's anything you can throw in a big pot. Boil it up and we eat it. And so, there's a very real sense here that this food is important. This is not like when you go into the fridge and you pull out the meat drawer and you look at the cold cuts that are in there and you smell them just to see if they're not any good. And if they're not any good, you toss them and you take the brand new one out and open it. This is, if the stew is bad, nobody eats. Period. This is real danger. There's real danger in the world here for them. And then we also see that God provides here in this vignette in the midst of mistakes, the dangers of our mistakes. Because someone goes out there to fill the stew and he doesn't realize that he's picked up the wrong vegetable. Now, this word for gourd or for uh, vegetable is only used here in the Bible. But what we think it is, it's a type of uh, plant or gourd or vegetable that when it's cut up, in small amounts, is a very powerful laxative. In large amounts, in larger amounts, it causes severe stomach difficulties. In still larger amounts, it can kill. So, while perhaps it's not at the deadly stage, because they say there's death in the pot, but they don't keel over, this is a real problem. They've ruined the only source of food they have. And can you imagine the servant? Perhaps he had gone out thinking, I'll just give it a little bit of flavor. Let me put this yellow stuff in. I'll spice it up. Everybody will think, hey, what go get them attitude. And now everybody's looking around saying, who put that in the stew? And he's going like this. Have you ever felt like that? Like you've messed up. You're teaching Sunday school to some kids and you don't realize it till you get home but you have butchered a Bible verse. And you think, oh no. Now I'm going to get five phone calls and every kid is going to think that Daniel is a coward. It could be you're trying to discipline your child and you go over the top screaming yell at them. Or you're trying to discipline your child and you're too soft. And you think, I've messed up. What do I do now? I can't fix this. God is powerful in the midst of your mistakes. This servant makes a mistake and God comes in, steps in through Elisha again and fixes the harm in the pot. And he does it through a visible sign. They get flour and they throw the flour in. And we might ask ourselves, why? Why doesn't Elisha just say, be good? It's the same reason that we have this table spread out here before us this morning. You see, God knows that visible things have an effect on us. He knows that ten years from now, when they're recounting this story, no one will remember the exact words that Elisha used. But someone will say, Do you remember when that stew was just horrible? Yeah. And you remember Elisha went over there and he grabbed the flower and he brought it over and he threw the flower in and we were able to eat it and it was a miracle of God? You see, that's how God acts sometimes. And he's given to you a visible miracle in his table to remind you of the work of his son. Final point, and then we'll move to the Lord's Supper. God is powerful not only over the danger that is out there in the world, and the danger we bring upon ourselves with our mistakes, but He's powerful over the danger of our dependence upon Him. Because you see, what happens is they're still hungry, There's still people that need to eat, and a man comes from Baal Shalishah. Immediately you know he comes from a very bad place. He comes from Baalville. And God reminds us that in the midst of a faithless world, a faithful man lives. And he brings the first fruits of these breads. Fruits that should have gone to the priests. But the man can't bring them to the priests because the priests are busy worshipping Baal and golden calves. There are no good priests in town. And so he brings them to Elisha. And Elisha does something that to us seems so Bible-like. He takes food that isn't enough, and God uses it to make more than enough. But I want you to see that this is a foreshadowing of those events that you know so well, the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000. And those feedings from our Lord are a foreshadowing of the events that are to come when we sit around the table of the marriage feast of the Lamb and there is always enough for everyone all the time. You see, God is powerful. God is powerful over our despair. He's powerful over death itself. And He is powerful today through all of the dangers that we face. May you draw great comfort from these stories. And see how God is powerful in your life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this. Your Word You have brought to us. We pray, Lord, that we might feed upon your word, even as those sons of the prophets fed upon the stew preserved by you. That we might make it a part of our very being, and we might rejoice in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.